Okay, let's recap our sort of Route 66 where we were going. Last week you finished Genesis. Hope you have, uh, I'm curious to know if any of your kids had questions. Uh, this week, starting tomorrow, you're going to begin the Gospel of John. So we thought we'd pair those two together because the beginning of John is so reflective of the beginning of Genesis. Also give you a little bit of fresh air uh, after kind of handling the tome of Genesis. So uh, something a little more familiar story. Um, Today we're going to start with the promise as it surfaces in the book of Genesis. But as you read the Gospel of John over the next two weeks, So Genesis is the promise being given. John is the promise being fulfilled. And I want to encourage you not to lose that connection that uh, what God is, what Jesus Christ is doing in John is spoken of in Genesis 12 this morning. And because we really are just reading one story. So that's where we're going. I encourage you to keep reading. It's, you only get two chapters a day, so if you look and you're like, score, only two, it's because the chapters in John are long. So you didn't win, okay? <laughs> Same thing, it's just different conversion rate. All right, well, let me, um, before we read John 12, or Genesis 12, let me answer a question, or at least uh, speak into uh, maybe a fatiguing experience that you had in Genesis, which was these lineages. Do you remember reading these lineages? And it's painful, probably in your read, feels somewhat meaningless. Uh, If you were listening to it, it's the kind of the part where you drift away and then you come back. And I understand that um, by themselves, they they don't regularly surface as particularly meaningful. But what I want to tell you is the book of Genesis is actually built on them. So Genesis is constructed around 10, 10 of those. So it's actually a fairly elegant structure for the book. They call them generations. You might have heard or read, these are the generations, and then you get the lineage. There's 10 of those in the book of Genesis. And they surface as ways of helping you move from one story to the next. So between Genesis 1 creation and man, you know what we get in Genesis 2 verse 4? These are the generations of man. Now, it's a pretty short one. You hardly even notice it's a lineage because... It's nothing to say, right? But nonetheless, it's the way the Genesis artfully moves you from one significant account to the next. So you get that generation there. After Cain kills Abel, you get a break. You get a generation, Genesis 5, that moves us to the story of Noah. After the epic of Noah, Genesis roughly 6 through 9, Genesis 10 is another generation that gets us to the story of Babel. After the story of Babel, we get another one of these generations that gets us to, we leave the prelude and we get to the story that we're in today. So we've actually, in, by getting to Genesis 12, you've made it through four of the 10 generations. And, and the rest of the book sort of hangs on that. That's, that's why they surface is to sort of move you from Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to Joseph, and so on. That's, that's the role it plays. And today we're We're out of the prelude of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 11, and we're into the story. That's how it's it's worth looking at. And let's look how the story begins. I'm going to read Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, 
and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's how the story starts. Just think about that. If 1 through 11 is prelude, and if chapter 12 starts the story, and I feel pretty confident that that's a helpful way of looking at at the Bible, this is how the story starts. So what I'd like to do is do three things this morning. I want us to think about the recipient of this promise, Abram. I want us to think about the giver of this promise, the Lord. And I want us to think about the promise itself. And just uh, at the very beginning of the story, uh, see what we can gather about the story itself. So um, let's talk about the recipient. Who is Abram? What do we know about Abram by this point? The answer is almost nothing. The fourth verse will tell us he's old and getting older, so he's 75. The 11th chapter, in one of those generations that you get, those long names where you sort of check out, uh, part of that lineage is getting us from uh, the ark, the, the lineage of Noah that stepped off the ark from Shem all the way to Abram. And so you find in there that uh, Abram's family had migrated from Ur, the land of Ur in Chaldea, which is in modern-day Iraq near the Euphrates. They've migrated all the way to Haran, which is just north of modern-day Syria. We know that. At, outside of Scripture, just in, in secular academia, we know that these locations with fairly great confidence have been located, so these are not... These are historical places. We also know uh, that there was a group of people called the Terahides. Now, Terah was Abram's father. The Terahides migrated from the land of Ur to Haran, roughly in this period of time. And we also know in the area of Haran, there are ancient names of towns that reflect Abram's family. So there's a town that's reflective of Terah, is a town reflective of uh, Terah's uh, grandfather, Sarag, his father, Nahor, and of course, Haran is uh, one of Abram's brothers. So there is no town named after Abram, which makes sense to us because he didn't stay there. But that's an interesting idea is you get up to that area near Haran and there's this, the Terahides, the family of Abram seems to have populated. We know that outside of scripture. And then also from Genesis 11, we know that Sarai, his wife, is barren. And that represents nearly everything we know about Abram. I suppose we could add to that an assumption, which is Abram, at the time of his calling, possessed the pagan norms of the rest of the world. So he was pretty much like the people's around him. I think that's a fair assumption. But apart from what we know and what we might assume, that's about it. Which is interesting given how important he is, right? Abraham, that's what he's going to be called, is pretty important. It's difficult to overestimate 
the account of Abraham in the Bible and in sort of God's redemptive work. And so you have this extremely significant figure. And all you essentially know is that when God calls him, he's old, he's from out of town, and his wife is barren. That's it. So why did God call him? Of all the people in the world to call, why does God call Abram? There is no point in the entire Bible that will try to justify why God called Abram. Not one point. In fact, it seems that as you read, the word of God will actually try to do something like the opposite. And incidentally, if you were reading, it's worth asking, why does God choose Abram? Because if any of your kids read this at the dinner table, they might have said to you something like, why in the world is God using Abram? I mean, you read the book of Genesis. He clearly does not deserve to have the promise. Genesis is sophisticated enough to put that in front of you. But somehow the promise has come to someone who's not worthy to carry it. So why? And it seems that instead of answering that question, the, the Bible purposely avoids the question. This passage is out of Deuteronomy 26. So it's towards the latter half of the law, which we'll deal with in several weeks. Uh, and it's dealing with uh, bringing the tithe to the Lord. And there was a ceremony that when you brought your tithe, or at least a representation of your tithe to the temple, you'd bring it in a basket. The priest would lay the basket before the altar. And then there would be this recitation. You, as the giver, would say something, and it would start this way. This is uh, Deuteronomy 26, verse 5. And you, speaking of the, the tithe giver, and you shall make a response before the Lord your God, saying, right, a wandering Aramean was my father. You know who that is? That's Abram. He's a nobody. The whole purpose of the tithe is for you to say before the Lord, we were nobodies and you have done this with us. So Haran is in the region of Aram. I can't say the modern day region of Aram, it's still ancient, but that's what it becomes. Our father was a wandering Aramean. He was a nobody. And, and earlier in Deuteronomy, there's gonna be this, this moment where the Lord says, hey, I'm gonna bring you into the land that I promised to your forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, don't forget don't forget, and just I want you to hear, hear how the Lord deals with the psyche of his people who are getting ready to take possession of the land. Here's what he says in Deuteronomy 9. He says, it's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you're going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of the nations, the Lord your God is uh, driving them out from before you so that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham to Isaac, and to Jacob. So why are we getting the land? Why are we getting the promise? We're getting it because God promised it. That's it. You're only getting it because God promised it. Then he says this, know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Your father was a nobody, 
and you're stubborn. There's this moment after the the golden calf where the Lord says to Moses, here's the deal. I made a promise to your forefather Abraham that I'd give the land, but if I keep walking with you, if I travel with you, I'm probably gonna kill all of you. (laughs) So how about we do this? You go on without me and you take the land. I'll stay here, the Lord says. Moses, you take the people into the land. To which Moses says, this is terrible. Please don't do this for us. And he ends up saying this. This is his rationale. In Exodus 33, he says, Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? Such a wise word from Moses. Without you, we are nobody. We're nobody. Abram is going to receive the seminal promise of God's redemptive work. The chief promise of God's redemptive work is going to come to him. And the word of God will never make one motion in the direction of justifying why he gets it. In fact, they're going to say, the promise of God came to an abject nobody. And when you see what he does after he gets the promise, you will say to yourself, He does not deserve it because he doesn't. He doesn't deserve it. This is the bedrock idea underlying the word elect, to be God's elect. God's people have no justification for having received God's call, right? God's call begins us. It's not the, the calling did not begin with Abraham. The calling began Abraham. Just like God's call, does God's call doesn't begin with you. God's call begins you. That's the idea. So this notion in the word, all through the Old Testament, you see these are the elect of the Lord. And then we'll see even today how the, the, in, in the New Testament, that idea of elect will be grabbed for God's God's people in Christ. This idea, though, is supposed to correspond to the gratefulness we should have and the faithfulness we should have and the humility we should have of, of, for no good reason, God called us. There's nothing in us that can answer the question why, which, so in some ways that's unstable. And for some ways, I, I just imagine on any Sunday, someone needs to hear that. That There's no good reason in you that the Lord would visit you with the promise he did. And you can relax about that. It never, ever has traced itself through a rational why that people can offer up. Our prior selves, they'd either commend us or they, nor they indict us. And I just want to encourage you, right? When you read the Gospel of John, as you're reading this week, take note of his very intricate select, selection process for his disciples. If you can figure out why he calls the people he does, let me know. Because you're going to read, and if you're thoughtful, you, you're going to say, why does he pick that person? Why pick that person? Perhaps the only one that he might have had a particular reason for was Judas Iscariot. I mean, we could say it this way. The apostles he chooses don't deserve to be his apostles. 
Well, that's the recipient of, of the promise. Let's look at the giver of the promise, the Lord. I want you, as you're kind of looking back on the reading, note the use of the first person. All the things that the Lord would do. He says, I will do these things. I mean, the structure of the promise, which we'll spend more time on in a second, but the structure of the promise is essentially this. Abraham, trust me and come my way. It's a, here's a good definition of faithfulness. Is living your life in the direction of the promises of God. Okay? That's what, that's what the Lord says to Abraham. Abraham, live your life in my direction. Put one foot in front of the other in a way that suggests to me that what I said to you is true. That's faithfulness. All right, we'll talk about that next Sunday. Live your life in my direction. And then the Lord says, and then I'll do everything else. I'll show you the land you should go to. I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. And those who curse you, I will curse. And through you, all the world will be blessed, presumably by the Lord, right? There's this, this, this promise. And this promise is reiterated all through Abram's life. So here in Genesis 12, it's reiterated again in 13, and then in 15, and then in 17, and then in 21. And each time, the Lord adds a few little more detail, but the spirit is the same. The spirit is lean in the direct, live as though what I'm telling you is true, and I'll do everything else. That's, that's the Lord. To Abram. You might say it's, it's the Lord to us. Think for a moment. Compare. Look at what God offers Abram versus what he, the Lord gets in return. Now this point is so obvious it's missable. Look at all that the Lord offers in this promise and then take stock of what he gets in return for it. In the book, in the Bible, Genesis 12, the Lord comes out of nowhere. I mean, out of nowhere, the Lord appears to Abram and he offers him this tremendous hope, right? And through Abram, corresponding with this hope for the whole world, and I want us to appreciate, I mean, when you look, well, what does he get in return? It's, there's little to nothing he gets in return, depending on how you want to think about it. Based upon nothing, purely on the initiative of God alone, right? That's the exact, the exact beginning of the story is that God, with nothing to gain on his entire initiative, makes this promise. What do you call it? Uh, we have a word when someone does something for someone else with the prospect of getting nothing in return. We use the word love for that. Like when God comes in our direction with this promise, with what is it we offer him? I mean, even what Abram responds to, the response of Abraham is that God desires is simply Abram, I, all I want you to do is live as though what I said is true. That's it. This is part of the one story, right? This notion, first of all, that God would visit promises on people who have no justifiable reason to receive them is, is the story of the Bible. 
the fact that here we see that God would on his own initiative offer something without getting anything meaningfully back in return is part of the story. When you read this week on Tuesday, when you come to a very familiar passage, John's going to say, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. What does he get in return? I just want us to see it's the same promise. Genesis 12 and John 3 are the same thing. The whole story is dependent on God's initiative to love for no good reason. All right, so that is the recipient of the promise and the giver of the promise. Let's just, let's close looking at the promise itself. The promise itself sounds something like this. Abram, in exchange for some small present comforts and security, I'm going to offer you an inestimable future. Something like that. I mean, there is a, a call to Abram that he has to leave and go, right? So, Abram, I'm asking you in the, in the now to forfeit uh, some of the creature comforts that you enjoy and to forfeit or hand over or relinquish some of the things that give you a sense of security. I'm asking from that from you now. And in return for your tiny little now, I'm going to give you a great then. That's the structure of the promise, right? That you in the land of what you can see and hold, I'm asking you to re relax there so you can live your life in my direction. And if you just do that, if all you do is re release your, your sense of control over the now, the future is unbelievable. That's the structure of the promise. In Abram, it's worth noting that Abraham, by the time he died, and you know this because you read, Abraham, by the time he passes, really hasn't received much of the promise. Much of the promise when he dies is still in front of him. What I'm saying is, is the promise that motivates Abraham exists in reality on the other side of the grave of Abraham. And yet it still has the power. It still has the power to move. I mean, the Lord says to him, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. Does he get the land? No. Now his people will one day. So just so you know, God keeps all of his promises, just not in the lifespan of Abraham, but he's, he's faithful to his promises, just not in the days of Abraham. So Abraham doesn't get the land. Abraham doesn't become a mighty nation, not in his lifetime. He does. Abraham doesn't outnumber the sand of the sea, not in his lifetime, but eventually they're very plentiful people. That's Exodus 1. Abraham's not like the stars of the sky yet, but one day they will be like that. I mean, we're part of those. You and I are stars in the sky. Think about that. You are that in this promise, right? The, the Lord said to Abraham, kings are going to come out of you. They didn't do that in, in the lifespan of Abraham, but they did eventually come out. Right? Nearly all the future, nearly all the power of the promise that is offered over to Abraham in order to get him to move is beyond the scope of Abraham's life. 
And yet it still is moving for him. Abraham gets a son. That's what he scores out of the whole thing. He gets a son. He gets enough. Just think about this, because it's one story. What the Lord is doing now in his life, the Lord is doing in every one of our lives. Right? Every one of us have no reason, and there's no good reason why you get the promise of God, because it's on the initiative of the Lord himself through the, through the power of love that it comes to you. So we don't deserve it, so don't ask, don't waste time on why did it come to you, right? It comes to you by love, and then the best parts of it are on the other side of this experience. And yet they should move you. And God, what God typically does is gives enough of his promise, just enough of his promise in our present life, like he primes the pump. He does enough in his life to go, God is faithful. Here's what it says about Abraham. This is, this is the book of Exodus. This is Exodus talking about Abraham and faith. I want you to listen to how it describes his mindset. This is speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says, these all died in faith, not having received things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. You hear that? And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they were seeking a homeland. Just think about that. The promise that moves Abraham to leave his home and wander like he's homeless his whole life is a promise that he understandably knew he would only ever see from a distance. Like in this life now, in this life now, Abram is able to relinquish the security of home for a home that he will never see in this life. That's the power. The power of the promise is in the future. That's a way to think about this. The promise of God for Abraham, but for us, the promise of God, it moves us, it moves our life from present to future. That's just the goal of the promise, is to move the orientation of your life from the present to the future so that you can let go of the things in the present that you're holding on to with a false sense of security. Right? The Lord is offering you so much in the future that you can let go of the now. That's the first motion of the promise, is from the present to the future. The second motion of the promise that's here is it's starting with the self and it's ending with the world. That's how he says here, Abram, I'll bless you. I mean, that would get my attention if God said, I'll bless you. Well, I'm in for that, right? So he starts where you're at, but he ends with the world. And through you, every family on the earth will be blessed. You know, I find, I find the up-close and personal promises of God seem to sort of move me, but they're the lesser things God wants to do. You think about that. Sometimes we, even in our Christian lives, we make our orbit around the lesser things that God wants to do in our lives 
rather than the greater things that he wants to do through our lives for the world. The best things he wants to do are through you on the way to someone else. And we see it here. If, if you go to John this week, you're going to find it, and I'm telling you, it's in Genesis. Same promise. Same promise. The last thing I'll say about the promise is it's not possible. <laughs> so Sarah is barren. So we have this notion that, right, God comes to Abram for no understandable reason. Abram, we know, doesn't deserve it, as we read the story. We realize there that the initiative, God gets nothing out of the promise that's marked. I mean, nothing that really adds to him. It's not a fair exchange, but rather it's on his own initiative out of love. And then we see that the nature of the promise is to move us from our petty present to our fantastic future, right? Kind of to move us from the small now to the big then, and to move us from the selfish self to sort of the world in mind. And then we also see this thing, and also what God wants to do with us is not possible. Jesus is going to say in the Gospel of John, anyone who believes in me will never die. And you would say, that's not possible. I want to close this morning. Uh, actually, I want to read you a passage out of 1 Peter. I just want us to appreciate, as I read, and it's not on the screen, you just use your ears. Um, so Peter is writing the letter of 1 Peter. This letter is landing in the churches in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, okay, which would be uh, the region of Galatia. Uh, that, that's where Paul, and, and other areas in Turkey, okay. Areas that by this point, when the letter of 1 Peter is written, the churches there are extremely diverse. They're not predominantly Jewish. They're mixed Jew and Gentile, mixed slave and free, mixed wealthy and poor. In fact, many people who study 1 Peter, in the study of 1 Peter, you get the impression the church is largely Gentile, largely poor, often slave. Okay? This, these, so that's the audience that Peter's writing to towards the end of his ministry. But I want you to hear the words that come, okay? He says this in verse 9, but you are a chosen race. Now, he's not saying that to pure-blood Jews. He's saying that to Gentiles. It's a spiritual saying. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. You see how Peter starts with the self, who you are, so that what? So that you can proclaim. He ends with the world. Right? If the promise of God is in you, it always sounds the same. He just says it here. And then he says this, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is who we are. If you're wondering about the promise of God this morning, I'm here to say um, it's come to you whether you deserve it or not. 
It's come to you because God's desire has always been to work through us to get to you, work through others to get to you, so that all the families, all the peoples on the earth would be blessed. Not because they deserve it, because they don't. Not because God harvests some great intrinsic good out of it for himself, because he doesn't. It's an unfair exchange of love. And his ask for you is, live in the direction of his promises. Set aside your tiny present the false sense of security that you, you've kind of anchored for yourself, set that aside and live in the direction of his great future. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we see in Genesis what we see all through your word. Even, even this morning, Lord, we pray that over these uh, three individuals who are coming forward in baptism as they lay down their present and take up their future as they invite the Lord to work through them for the world, Lord. And Father, forgive us when uh, the petty circumstances and our desires for a piece of your promise right now seems to interrupt our faith and trust in you, Lord, when your present timing seems off, when your voice seems too quiet for us. when we don't feel like we're inheriting the blessings that we expected now, Lord, remind us, remind us that the future in Christ is beyond what we can estimate. And that we are the beginning, but the world is the end. Lord, make us faithful in this. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.